Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of Green and Red podcast. I am Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California today. And I'm Bob Bazanko in Houston, Texas. And we always uh, begin by thanking you and want to do that again. We have an amazing guest today, which we'll get to, who we'll get to in just a minute. And if you uh, like this episode, which we know you will, because it's great and it's an amazing guest, uh, you know, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate button or consider becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. Yeah. And uh, check us out. Uh, we also have some books available for donors and uh, we're going to get some swag, some t-shirts and things too. So you can join the green and red community and become a comrade uh, with us. Um, today, we are uh, fortunate uh, again to have uh, Noam Chomsky on as our guest. And today we'll specifically be talking with him about uh, the Democratic Party and the rightward shift in American politics. This is the 50th anniversary of George McGovern's 1972 campaign, which was a disaster for Democrats. And it really initiated a long rightward move uh, for the Democratic Party, for American politics in general. And so uh, we're going to talk to Noam about that. And we're going to start, he's going to talk with him talking about the 1972 campaign and how it led into Watergate. Yep. So we'll be right back with Noam Chomsky. He ran the most incompetent campaign that you can possibly imagine. Actually, I found out something about it just myself. It turned out that, I don't know if you recall, at the time there was a big flap about how Kissinger made a speech about how the war in Vietnam is all over, the US is gonna negotiate a way out, it's finished, forget the issue. It was all total lies, total. You looked at the uh, facts, he was saying nothing except the wars going on. I happened to be in touch with Richard Goodman, who was a leading advisor to McGovern. And I asked him, why doesn't the McGovern campaign release this information? And they told me they didn't know anything about it. So I, he asked me if I could send him documentary evidence, which I did. And then McGovern had a press conference in which he quoted the documentary evidence. And he was asked to back it up. He had no idea. It was just a letter he'd gotten from me. So everybody left, you know. I mean, yeah. it was just unbelievable incompetence. And none of this was secret. It was and it went on like that. Of course, he was shafted by the labor leaders who yeah. refused to support him. And it's worth remembering that there was no real opposition to the war among elite circles, Democrat or Republican. Uh, they, they, you know, they'd go as far as saying maybe it's a mistake or something like that. But any actual uh, opposition to the war almost non-existent. In fact, uh, decades later, can't find anything. It's uh, 
well, you know better than I do. You look through the scholarly record, you can find people who say it was a mistake. Okay, like Russian generals uh, in Afghanistan. Okay, it was a mistake. It's becoming very dramatic now with all the hysteria about Ukraine. So in fact, there's a marvelous article in Foreign Affairs by Fiona Hill, the Angela Stent, the top liberal uh, foreign policy analysts, highly regarded. And they're condemning uh, the third world for not joining in the US campaign in Ukraine. And they say some of them even descend so low that they compare Putin's invasion to the US, US efforts in Vietnam and in Iraq. I mean, you don't even know if you're living in the world. This is, it's, it's not that there's anything secret about this anymore. Tons of material, but uh, the, well, um, anyway, going back to McGovern, that's the background. He couldn't get any real support from uh, liberal circles because they didn't agree with him. This is a Green Red Podcast with Noam Chomsky. Uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the McGovern debacle and kind of the Democrats drift to the right since then. So that's what we were going to talk about today. Um, you were talking a little bit about the McGovern campaign, um, and you mentioned labor, because I remember AFL-CIO, I think, even refused to endorse him. Uh, but wasn't there also a movement within the Democratic Party by you know people like Jimmy Carter, in fact, to, to stop him, like kind of an anybody but McGovern movement? Yeah. Well, Carter was, of course, pretty conservative. In fact, uh, you know, Carter was, the Carter administration was the last gasp of the Democratic Party to have any concern for the labor movement. It's uh, one of the leading uh, labor leaders, uh, Doug Fraser, UAW, pulled out of a Carter organized uh, labor management conference, which was supposed to say how we will love each other and we'll work together. And he, which was Carter's view, basically. And he, uh, Fraser made a very strong statement about how it's time for labor to recognize that business is fighting a one-sided class war to destroy the labor movement. And they've pulled out of the tacit compact of the last couple of decades to cooperate to create a better society. They're now just fighting a bitter class war, pulling out. Uh, the last gasp was the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill uh, in 1978. Uh, Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it had no force, just a voluntary agreement. He was quite anti-labor and he laid the basis for the uh, Reagan sharp escalation of the major class war neoliberal assault, be decked with all kind of fancy talk about markets, which is total nonsense, but it's just unrestrained class war. Uh, and Carter basically laid the basis for it. I should say that in Carter's 
later years, post-presidential, he's had a pretty good record, mm -hmm. not as president. In fact, right. he was part of the drift of the Democratic Party from in the 1970s to becoming what it now is, a party of affluent professionals, Wall Street kind of people who show up at Obama's fancy parties and Martha's Vineyard and so on, listen to Beyonce. You weren't, you weren't invited to his uh, 60th birthday? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. Um, so the 70s really is a pivot point. And I know there's uh, recently some books on neoliberalism have come out, which kind of pin it on Reagan, but um, you really see this even before that. Uh, Carter was part of the Trilateral Commission. What do you think accounts for that shift away from the New Deal? Is it just kind of the global economy in the 70s starts to kind of contract uh, the, the aftermath of Vietnam? I mean, why do you think even the Democrats in the 70s said, OK, we're done with the New Deal. Now we're going to you know, look for these solutions in the markets and elsewhere. If we look back over a longer stretch, um, most of the business world, not all of it, but most of it was bitterly opposed to the New Deal in the 1930s. They basically had no choice. The popular movements were too strong. They had to tolerate it. But by the late 30s, they were already beginning, business campaigns were already beginning to try to undermine New Deal regulations, carry out what they called scientific methods of strike breaking, Mohawk Valley formula, all this kind of stuff, uh, was put on hold during the war. But immediately after the war, picked up right away, passed hardly other measures to try to undo New Deal measures, but they were just too popular. You can take Eisenhower. By, by today's standards, Eisenhower looks like a flaming radical, yeah. literally. He said, any, anyone who questions New Deal measures doesn't belong in our political system. Anyone who interferes with the right of labor to organize is just too crazy to be in our political system. I mean, by now, that's the whole Democratic and Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, but the campaigns went right through the 50s. They couldn't make it too much support. Around 1970, the opportunities opened to really go full-time. There was an economic, kind of an economic crisis. Nixon's pulling out of Bretton Woods, and Nixon shock, so-called, a lot of disruption, stagflation. You get to the Trilateral Committee report, which is quite interesting. This is Carter liberals, uh, liberal internationalists, uh, Carter administration, mostly drawn from those ranks. Very important book, 1975, called The Crisis of Democracy. It was about what's called the time of troubles in the 1960s, when lots of people were getting organized and active, uh, trying to press their interests and concerns in the political arena, the groups that are called special interests like women, young people, old people, farmers, and workers, in fact, the whole population. One group is not mentioned, uh, capital, uh, the business sector, the they're not special interests. So we don't have to talk about them, they're the national interest. So we only talk about the special interests and 
Trilateral Commission report says they're posing a danger to democracy. That's what the book was called, The Crisis of Democracy. All these special interests pressing for the demands and trying to enter the political arena, too much pressure on the state can't respond to them. So we have to have more moderation in democracy. They have to become more passive and apathetic and obedient and just let us smart guys run things. Uh, they were particularly concerned with the universities, which they said uh, are failing, I'm quoting now, failing in their responsibility of indoctrination of the young. That's why you see these young kids out in the street protesting the war and calling for civil rights and got to stop that business. Better indoctrination of the young. They were also concerned that the press is becoming too independent, may have to institute state measures to control them. This incidentally is the liberal side of the spectrum. You want to hear the hawkish side, go to the Powell Memorandum to the Chamber of Commerce, same years. Basically the same measures, but much harsher. Uh, and, and also kind of insane it was about how the business world is being destroyed by the radicals are taking over the world. And uh, Ralph Nader with his consumer protests and destroying free markets. And, uh, Herbert Marcuse taking over the universities. I mean, it's kind of like a, you can kind of understand it. It's like a three-year-old who has everything. But somebody takes away one of the marbles he didn't notice as a tantrum. That's the Powell Memorandum. We're losing everything because we don't control everything 100%. Well, that was influential but in business activity. The Trilateral Commission is the liberal and a little bit softer in the rhetoric of same policies. You take a look at the statistics. They're very striking. Around the mid-1970s, about 1975, you start getting the sharp split in economic statistics. So up until 1960-75, the period of so-called regulated capitalism, uh, wage growth was following productivity, uh, as you'd expect. The US was pretty much within the range of other wealthy countries, OECD countries, and things like uh, health costs, uh, health expenditures, uh, health outcomes, uh, incarceration. By mid-1975, it all splits. The charts are very dramatic. At that point, the US starts falling behind the other OECD countries sharply uh, in dimension after dimension. Well, that's the Carter preliminary to the, I mean, I don't blame him personally, it was the Democratic Party, which had basically abandoned the working class. They were, as I said, becoming the party of affluent professionals. But, uh, and the Republicans, of course, just took off with it. Uh, the people behind Reagan understood very well what they were doing. First act, destroy the labor movement. Thatcher in England did exactly the same thing. That's quite important. That's the only means of self-defense of working people when you're going to carry out major class war. 
And then you go on with the deregulation, the massive growth of the financial industries, the bailout economy and crises, all the rest of it. And it's interesting, we've probably talked about this before, but there are actual measures of the success, great success of the class war from the Rand Corporation, super respectable corporation, uh, did a study of transfer of wealth in the 40 years since Reagan from uh, to the top 1% of the population, $50 trillion. That's pretty impressive class war. And that's just the beginning. Reagan authorized tax havens, all sorts of devices to evade and to increase corporate welfare, even change the rules of corporate management so that a CEO could pick his own, his own board to determine his, his remuneration, guess what's going to happen, shoots to the sky, carrying other managerial sellers with it, uh, business models imposed in universities, uh, defunding of education, whole business goes on from there. Starts in the mid seventies, escalates under Reagan. That's what we have now. What I find striking is that Watergate occurs in the Nixon resigns, Watergate blows up and Nixon resigns in 1974. And then the Democrats in 1976 and 1978 have pretty good elections, but by 1980, it's all gone. Like how in such a short period of time did the Republicans recover from that? And how did the Democrats become, you know, so ineffective and weak in the aftermath of, you know, having a virtually a veto-proof Congress with Jimmy Carter? Well, I mean, two things happened. One, which was the main one, was the business world realized that the bars are down. The uh, efforts, serious efforts they'd been undertaking actually since the late 30s to roll back any social democracy to return to a corporate autocracy. By the 70s, the bars were down. They could go full force. That's why you see the very sharp changes in the statistical record right around 1975. Meanwhile, the Democrats had just decided we're not a working class party. We're affluent uh, professionals, Wall Street donors, Clintonites, the rest of them. So there's no, no opposition. They could just, when Reagan came in, just go ahead full force. And that's what we've been living with for 40 years. That's why you see uh, the anger, resentment, uh, contempt for institutions, uh, the whole society kind of collapsing. That's why you see uh, a million deaths from COVID, worst record in the world, because the health system collapsed. Well, it started collapsing in the mid 70s. Go back to 1975, the US health expenditures were roughly in the OECD range. Statistics, health outcomes were about the same. By now, the US is just off the chart. Now, there's no other country where mortality is actually increasing. It's unheard of in the modern world. 
It's taking place in the United States. It's been increasing for falling behind the rest of the world for some time. And now it's the only country where in the last couple of years, mortality is actually increasing. Now you look at comparative records, now the US is doing worse than Cuba. Mm -hmm. I'm a small country under brutal, vicious attack by the hemispheric superpower. It's got better health results than we do at a tiny fraction of the cost. Well, that's a pretty striking example, but it's going across the board. And it's, uh, you showed us, I mean, one of the Financial Times editors, the main business journal in the world, pointed out half in joke that if Bernie Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the right wing Christian Democrat yeah. uh, uh, program, which is true. Now his policy, the policies he's calling for, is taken for granted in most of the world. Here they're regarded as so radical we can barely even talk about them. Well, that's what's been happening. It's a very, it's the most effective case of class war that we've seen since the 1920s. 1920s, in fact, was pretty similar uh, after Wilson's Red Scare, destruction of unions, destruction of independent thought, uh, corporate sector going wild, huge inequality. Uh, you know, I'm now back to my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the parallel path of labor is really interesting here too, because they're kind of doing the same thing the Democratic Party is. I mean, you have these structural crises and it seems like the inclination for everybody and the establishment is to go further to the right with them. That's where the money is. That's where the power is. That's where the prestige is. So you want to fight against it, you get marginalized and vilified, you know, who wants that? It's much easier to go with the flow, live a comfortable life, be respected. Uh, uh, I mean, that goes right back through history. At Green and Red, we often say that the Democrats, the centrist Democrats, punch left, so they go after their left flank. And we, you know, during the 80s and 90s, we saw them go after people like Jesse Jackson, Paul Bellstone, and more recently, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, the Sanders movement is extremely important, including Ocasio-Cortez and others. They've mobilized a great number of young people to try to move the country towards some kind of social democracy in most of the world that's not much of a big deal, but here it's very important. Um, it's worth remembering how reactionary the United States has become. I mean, like take the word socialist. I mean, in most of the world, say somebody's a socialist is like saying he's a Democrat. This doesn't mean anything. Here it's a scare word. In fact, this goes pretty far back, I don't know if you recall, but in the 1960s, uh, when SDS, Students for Democratic Society, was developing the first major uh, movement, young people, uh, 
around the mid-60s, Paul Potter, who was the president, gave a presidential address. And his presidential address was about, uh, it's time to name the system. We've got to be brave and courageous and be able to name the system, namely capitalism. He couldn't bring himself to say the word, it was too radical. You can't say the word capitalism in the United States, it's too radical. Okay, things have changed, now you can say it. Uh, but socialist impossible, communist, hopeless. You know? The United States is a very much a business-run society, ideologically and uh, in practice for many reasons that go way back. So a lot of what's just considered normal elsewhere is kind of way off on the margins here. You see it in policy as well. You take something as simple as uh, maternal leave, leave for women after childbirth. And the United States is the only country that doesn't have it outside of a couple of Pacific islands. And uh, nobody sees it, you know. And this is true on issue after issue. That's uh, very much a business-run society. And sometimes it really goes wild, like in the 1920s, or since the Reagan period, for which the basis was set in the 70s. In fact, it's very striking to look at statistics of the kind I mentioned, and we'll see the very sharp break around the mid-70s, and then, of course, extending under Reagan. It's uh, dramatic. I think that's a, that's an important period there too. Um, after Reagan, because you have, I mean, Democrats today still praise and and seem to adore the Clintons and Obama, yet they all kind of uh, very publicly said, you know, I'm I'm not that far from Reagan, uh, and especially with Clinton, you had the the, the DLC created, uh, so-called welfare reform, the the crime bill, and then of course NAFTA. So um, isn't this like really kind of a, a huge a transitory period in this move to the right uh, done by these these corporate Democrats, the DLC types especially? Well, Clinton uh, really initiated the period of uh, corporate-run globalization, a form of globalization designed to undermine the U.S. working class and to enrich private corporations, which has been very successful in that respect. Corporate profits go through the roof. The working people are crushed. You know, lays the basis for Trump coming along and pretending to be the working class protector. Of course, shafting him in the back the whole time. But uh, lays the basis for it. Democrats can't respond. What are they doing? Destroying uh, industrial America in order to enrich private power. And of course, it's all supported by a cadre of economists who can prove some theorem that shows this is the best thing to do, mostly jokes. But however, I think we should recognize it's changing. Now take take uh, Joe Biden under a lot of popular pressure, a lot of it coming from the Sanders movement, Sanders himself. Uh, the domestic program of the Biden administration, to me at least, was surprisingly good. 
it was beaten down totally by 100% ironclad Republican opposition, a couple of right-wing Democrats. So it was all virtually destroyed. But the original program was pretty reasonable. That's the shift uh, in American policy. And it could be a, a sign of a more hopeful future if the Democrats can become a party responsive to the interests and welfare of the working people and the poor, which they could. I think the Sanders movement is a, a sign of what could develop, but probably this won't happen. The Republicans understand it very well and are moving hard, not secretly, to make it impossible for democratic elections to take place, which is going full time right now. Hey folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like John Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcasts. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um jingles or folds uh, uh you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron uh, we'll see you again real soon and, and a lot of these issues and, and you bring up a good point um the more progressive or traditionally democratic positions are often very popular. I mean, most Americans say the healthcare system is in bad shape uh, on issues like abortion and guns and, and LGBTQ rights, gay marriage, just the, there's a laundry list of issues where the Americans are pretty supportive. Uh, yet the Republicans with a, a minority position, even on abortion, most very most Republicans don't even have the same position as the, the party leadership. Um, they kind of win. Like how do, how do the how does this happen where you have these large movements with significant, even on immigrant rights, significant public support, but the Democrats just kind of get steamrolled? Well, the poll results are very striking. Turns out that people don't know that the democratic programs are the kinds that they support. Hmm. So there are a lot of polls showing that take on Biden's uh, Build Back Better proposal, you know, the main proposals. Turned out that on issue after issue, public strongly supported them, but they opposed the program. And when asked, turned out most people didn't know it was in the program. 
All they knew was uh, this right-wing propaganda about how big government is coming to try to take your house away and hand everything over to the blacks and so on and so forth. We don't want that. Uh, I mean, a majority of Republicans, I think it's uh, maybe two-thirds or so, believe in the great replacement theory. You know, the Democrats are conspiring to bring people in to destroy the white race. No, I'm not going to let that happen. So I don't know what's all this legalese and technical stuff in the program. I don't know anything about that. I just want to protect myself and my family. Now, that's great propaganda. Now, if you had a uh, lively, active, militant working class, like in the 30s, they'd be educating people about, and organizing them about what's happening. They defend themselves. I can remember this very well. I'm old enough to remember the 1930s. My family was first-generation immigrants, working class, uh, very active. They didn't have much formal education, but very educated, knew all about social and political issues, many other things, deeply involved. Republican propaganda couldn't make any headway with them because they were parts of organized activist movements which were doing things as well as uh, educating. If you don't have any self-defense mechanism, people are just alone, you know, atomized. Uh, they can't react. We're seeing what seems to be a lot of energy around labor, talking about Starbucks and Amazon campaigns. Uh, last last October, they were talking about strike October, but as we're you know, as we see this, like greater gaps in the between the haves and the have-nots, do you see this sort of like rising energy around labor and around other issues, climate, migrant rights, et cetera, um, uh, potentially being able to sway or influence the? I think the Republicans are lost, but sway or influence the Democrats uh, going forward. Potentially is the right word. It's possible, but take a look at those strikes. I mean, management by now has developed very sophisticated tools to crush any kind of labor uh, movement. You watch the tactics that are being used by Starbucks and Amazon to try to crush anything. Uh, and there's no restrictions because the labor laws have been dissolved, basically. Technically, there's some things on the books, but nobody applies them. And our National Labor Relations Board has been basically eliminated. Uh, there's no defense from government, no, from the political sector. There's no organized political parties. You go back to the 1930s, not only was there a militant labor movement, but there were a lot of activist political parties, political organizations. Now it's very different. The success in atomizing intimidating population has been pretty impressive. Now the Sanders movement is beginning to break with that, but it's very hard. And you can see it on issue after issue. I take today, for example, uh, in Brazil, there's an a very important election coming up uh, with a 
Social Democratic candidate Lula, who's way ahead in the polls, and neo-fascist Bolsonaro, who's strongly supported by the business world, the military, the police, and so on. Uh, Bolsonaro has said he's just not going to accept the election. He's going to follow the Trump line, probably with the same advisors coming from Trump's advisors. Well, Sanders tried to get a bipartisan Senate resolution saying the United States opposes a military coup, wants to have democratic elections. It's a very important election, most important country in Latin America. Couldn't get a single Republican to say we're opposed to a coup. Even something like that. You know, we're opposed to a military coup in a major democracy in, the, in South and Latin America. Not one. I mean, these people are just rigid proto-fascists. Use the word. You're uh, listening to the Green and Red podcast. We are here, as I'm sure you figured out, with uh, Professor Noam Chomsky. We're talking about uh, the 50th kind of anniversary of the McGovern debacle and uh, the evolution of American politics to the far right since then. And I think Scott has a question about uh, a very important issue that's going on today within democratic circles, which is where the priorities for the party and for the movement, for the larger progressive movement should be. Yeah. Um, my, my other question, and this actually goes at least as far back as, as the McGovern campaign, but you know, why is it, why do you think Democrats have abandoned class material issues for issues around identity, around intersectionality? Well, suppose you're a, repre a Democratic representative. Uh, you get elected to the House, let's say. Now, what's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is get on the telephone to call the donors to make sure that they'll fund you in the next election. Because elections are pretty much bought in the United States. You look at Congress, there's very good work by Tom Ferguson, the political economist and his associates. And the correlation between funding and electability is astonishing. You rarely get results like that in the social sciences. It's almost a straight line. So the first thing you do is get on the phone, call the donors, make sure they're happy. While you're doing that, uh, a horde of uh, corporate lawyers are descending on your offices to meet with the staff and to overwhelm them with uh, all kinds of uh, information, uh, distortions, uh, and uh, basically write the legislation. And then the congressman goes back and signs the legislation. It's not a caricature. It's pretty much it's an exaggeration, but not much. Well, uh, corporate lobbying exploded in the 1970s. Huge increase. Uh, the business world really saw the opportunity. We're not going to let it go to waste. Huge campaign spending, lobbying, uh, every possible device to ensure that the democratic elections can't really take place and that the business world could overcome this crisis of democracy. Elites were really frightened by the activists 
activism of the 60s. It's worth remembering that the activism of the 60s really civilized the society. It's a very different country than what it was. I mean, things that used to be perfectly normal then are intolerable now. Elite opinion didn't like this. It's threatening. It's threatening to the basis of power. So you have to beat it back. You get on the right things like the Powell Memorandum. Let's just go for the jugular. On the left, so-called, you get the softer ideas of uh, uh, let's uh, have better indoctrination of the young and so on. But it's, uh, and then it was backed by enormous wealth and power. It would take some integrity and honesty to combat that. McGovern, as an individual, had it. But when he was crushed, it was a sign. No use trying, you know. Let's just go with the flow. That's pretty much what happened. As a, there were some holdouts, like Humphrey and Hawkins, as I mentioned, didn't try to hold the traditional pro-labor position, but they were just wiped down. Just to sort of change the topic, Professor Chomsky, um, I remember back in 1994 when the Republicans came in and part of Newt Gingrich's attack line on the Clintons were that they were cultural McGovernics, you know, which implied that they were doves or peaceniks as far as like foreign policy. But we saw some of the, some, you know, very brutal foreign policy moves by the Clinton administration around Iraq, around former Yugoslavia. And then, you know, that the, the sort of democratic hawkishness I know can goes back, you know, decades, but particularly looking at Clinton and Obama, you know, how is this sort of democratic hawkishness abroad uh, very much part of that, the program of the corporate Democrats? Yeah, I think that's very significant. And one thing about Gingrich is uh, he switched the character of the Republican Party. He made, the, made it very clear, and he won, that the Republican Party should be at war. It should no longer try to cooperate in a parliamentary system the way it had before, it should just basically declare war. We're gonna fight and destroy any opposition. We're gonna take power. Gingrich is the one who changed the Republican party in that respect. It's gone on from there. With regard to foreign policy, Clinton had an awful record. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, just take a look at US funding. I mean, uh, the U.S. foreign aid, the highest foreign aid went to the worst murderous human rights violators. And put aside Israel and Egypt, they're a separate category. But the rest of the foreign aid, uh, the top foreign aid recipient became Turkey. Why? Turkey was carrying out a murderous campaign of state terror against its Kurdish population. Uh, tens of thousands have killed, hundreds of thousands of refugees, thousands of towns and villages destroyed, and every kind of torture. Uh, funding from Clinton increased as the atrocities increased. And finally, by the peak of the atrocities, 1998, uh, Clinton, Clinton, U.S. aid to Turkey was greater than the entire Cold War period up to the launch of the counterinsurgency. 
well, this was barely reported. New York Times has a bureau, of course, in Ankara, not a word about it, almost nothing. Uh, but in uh, uh, take the sanctions against Iraq. Sanctions against Iraq were murderous. The two international diplomats, highly respected, who were administering it, resigned in protest one after the other because they said they're genocidal. Gave a lot of details about it. The second one, Hans von Sponek, wrote a major book about it, different kind of war, describing the details about how the Clinton programs were devastating the civilian society and strengthening the dictator. You can't even mention the book in the United States. I doubt that there's been a review of it, uh, but uh, but you, and all, uh, this is just the beginning, it goes on and on. Meanwhile, you read uh, the liberal press, say the New York Review of Books. It was describing Clinton's policy, I'm quoting now, as uh, having a saintly glow, uh, literally, as just uh, something we've never seen before. Well, that's the left liberal press. Uh, what are people going to think? They don't read what's going on, can't. Press isn't covering. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the effects of NAFTA, one effect was to greatly increase the uh, opportunities for the corporate sector to crush strikes illegally. So there's a study of the effect of NAFTA on uh, labor actions by Kate. Um, forgotten her name, Cornell University labor historian, uh, is under NAFTA rules, she undertook the study. Turned out that about, I think, 50% or so of labor actions were simply killed by illegal corporate uh, uh, efforts related to NAFTA, like putting a, a banner up on the, the company headquarters saying, the Mexico transfer operation. In other words, if you try to strike, you're going to move to Mexico. Not that they were going to do it, but it was enough to break the strike. It's illegal, but when you have a criminal state, it doesn't matter if it's illegal. A huge number of labor, I think about 50% were undermined by this. Well, this is one consequence of labor. Of, uh, but it was a saintly glow and so on and so forth. It's, uh, um, that's what you're fighting, a major propaganda system which manages to suppress almost everything that's happening. People are left in the dark. They know that things are no good, like they don't like the fact that they go bankrupt if they have a health problem. It doesn't happen in other countries. Uh, they know they lost their job and their town is destroyed because industry left and young people are leaving, but they don't know why. Uh, even things like what I mentioned, the Build Back Better polls, people like every part of it, but hate the bill. And interestingly, Democrats didn't exploit that. They didn't say, okay, let's have a vote on piece by piece. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that. They just didn't with the ruling powers. 
you're, you're talking about foreign policy. You know, the other day I was teasing you that you and John Mearsheimer are responsible for everything that's gone wrong in Europe. Um, but there has been this really kind of the Democrats have really circled the wagons, the NATO liberals. And, you know, uh, Scott and I have both been told we're pro-Putin and we're apologists. Um, I mean, this isn't terribly surprising, but uh, there's clearly uh, uh, the Democrats are, are behind the the uh, American support in Ukraine far more actually than the GOP is. And uh, I mean, uh, where does this head? I mean, doesn't this kind of make things worse for progressive politics? Yeah. It's getting, it's worse than progressive politics. I think it's extremely dangerous for the world. I mean, we now have a situation where although practically the whole world has been calling for negotiations. The whole global South, uh, even Europe, Germany, for example, about three quarters of the population want to go for negotiations. The US is blocking it. Uh, nothing gets reported much, but can find out a little. So last April, uh, this again, according to Fiona Hill in Foreign Affairs, pretty respectable reports that uh, in April, there were negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, which were making some progress. And Hill says, well, of course they were blocked by the Russians. Doesn't give any evidence. But what she doesn't report is that the prime minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, immediately flew to Ukraine with the message that the West, meaning the US and Britain, wouldn't accept it, followed by Lloyd Austin, Defense Secretary in the United States, who came with his message that said the point of the war is to weaken Russia. No negotiations. So, of course, they collapsed. Is there anything beyond? Does anybody know about that? Well, of course not. Um, if you read uh, antiwar.com, you can find out about it free country, but uh, it's, uh, I mean, and this is just, I mean, the most important thing right now, and I'm astonished that it's not being reported, is the what the US is doing in Taiwan. I mean, the, the Pelosi visit did get some publicity, but Congress, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, just passed overwhelmingly bipartisan, uh, what's called the Taiwan Policy Act, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago. It's a pretty shocking act. It's now going to Congress. Calls basically turning Taiwan into a, what they call a non-NATO ally, but treating it like a NATO power, pouring weapons in, interoperability of uh, weapon systems with the United States, joint military programs, uh, treating uh, Taiwan as having the same diplomatic status as an independent country. I mean, there is something called international law. We don't believe in it here, but it's out there somewhere. Unambiguously, Taiwan is part of China. It's like saying, uh, China saying they're going to have operations with Kansas or something like that. I mean, you go to free countries like Australia, they're screaming about this. Uh, 
actually the US has held to what's called a one China policy since 1979, recognizing that Taiwan is part of China, but then adding what's called strategic ambiguity. China and we agree not to rock the boat. In other words, not to talk about it, not rock the boat. I mean, it's as if Congress wants to have two major wars, each of which will destroy us. I mean, it's hard to figure out what can be going on in the minds of these lunatics. And of course, it doesn't get reported here. Well, Taiwan is interesting because there's, like you said, there's no, but there's really no ambiguity there. I mean, Pelosi knew what she was doing and they knew, you know, how China would respond. So what, I mean, given the state of the world right now, you know, pandemic and global economic crises, Europe, especially, uh, just everything's going wrong. Why would you, you know, a war in Ukraine, a big war in Ukraine, where a lot of people have already died uh, and it's crushing the global economy. Why would you provoke China over Taiwan at this particular point? I I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's unbelievable. It's almost (laughs) as if they have a death instinct. Let's get it over with fast. Let's have two major wars, each of which will destroy us. Somebody watching this from outer space, they think they're insane. (laughs) I have this image of the final scene from Dr. Strangelove, you know, where the the cowboy hat on the bond, that's kind of where we're headed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, Um, Dan Ellsberg, who's an old friend, who was on the inside then, told me that when he and his friends from Rand Corporation went to see Dr. Strangelove, they could recognize everything. Hmm. He said it's pretty much like what was going on there. They could even identify the people. <laughs> <laughs> I think Scott had a, a follow up on that. Yeah, just that my and this is this is my final question. I've actually been I've read your recent book with BJ Prashad, The Withdrawal, um, and it's you know this failed bipartisan foreign policy of the last twenty or thirty years, and also looking at you know Ukraine and Taiwan. Um, what what does this reveal? What does this reveal about the U.S. supremacy in world affairs? Like where it, it seems like we're in this like sort of decline period. Lots of people say that, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. It's decline in some respects, but not in others. And I think, I think what you're pointing to is the major issue in world affairs. Is there going to be a unipolar world with the U.S. running it? Or is it going to be a multipolar world with a variety of power centers which just have to accommodate with each other? There's one thing we should not forget. Unless the great powers are able to accommodate and work together, we're done. The crises we face are all international. They don't have any borders. We're going to either work together or just collapse together. And now NATO, which is, of course, the U.S. instrument for global domination, uh, has now officially, officially expanded to the Indo-Pacific region. The last NATO summit expanded the North Atlantic to the Indo-Pacific region, meaning (laughs) basically the whole world. It's not a secret, you know. It's completely public. Meanwhile, the world is opposing that. And it's pretty striking to see the way 
you know, to see the way it's handled. I mean, I'm used to deceit and deception and so on, but sometimes it's hard to grasp. Like if you're reading the papers here, or even the foreign policy, for example, the policy journals, very excited about the fact that India is finally breaking with Russia and joining with the United States. And take a look at it. It's based on six words that Prime Minister Modi said at a meeting with Putin in Samarkand. He said, this is not a time for war. Okay, that's it. I took the trouble of looking up his speech on the Indian government website. It's practically a love poem to Putin. He says, this is not a time for war. We have to work together for peace. We have a wonderful uh, record of cooperation. We're deepening it. We're uh, looking forward to even warmer relations in the future. That's the speech. Comes out, uh, India's breaking with Russia. I mean, current issue of foreign policy, foreign affairs just repeats it. I mean, the, you don't know what to say, you know. Well, uh, as always, we appreciate you talking with us on Green and Red. You're our favorite guest. Um, I have one final question to kind of wrap all this up. It was great talking about McGovern and the Democrats from someone who was kind of present at the creation of, of that era. Um, about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so, I think it was during the second Bush administration, I was just saying, like, have you seen things this bad before? You know, and you said, well, this isn't as bad as McCarthyism. I'm not even close, I think. But it's uh, what, like 15 years later, and and uh, we've just gone through Trump. We still are enduring Donald Trump, a president who apparently steals documents, right? Uh, would you still say this is like, you know, we're there's kind of hope out there and we're still kind of making some progress? Or is it like, you know, are we now at a place where we're back into, you know, 1948? A lot of things are much better. If you go back and think about what the country was like, in the 1960s, let's say, there's been enormous improvement. I mean, remember the, let's just take the Vietnam War, the worst atrocity, the worst crime since the Second World War. Uh, I'm not telling you, you don't know anything better than I do, but Kennedy sharply escalated the war, uh, <laughs> authorized the US Air Force to start bombing South Vietnam, uh, initiated chemical warfare programs, crop destruction programs to drive huge numbers of people out of the villages into what amounted to concentration camps, uh, authorized napalm. Couldn't get any interest, none. I mean, I remember uh, I would talk to people in their living rooms, uh, go to a church where there's four people, Nobody gave a damn, nothing. It was years. I was living in Boston, the most liberal city in the country. It was years before you could even get people to be willing to talk about it. Uh, not in the Cambridge elite sector, they never want to hear about it. But uh, you get some popular opposition by the time the country is almost destroyed. Well, it's better than that now. Things, in fact, 
U.S. administrations know they cannot fight that kind of war again. In fact, uh, one of the things that happened in Vietnam was that the army collapsed to its credit. Soldiers just refused to follow orders. Uh, the United States learned a lesson that every other imperial power had known for centuries. You can't fight a brutal, vicious colonial war with kids you take off the streets. You need professional killers. That's why you had the French Foreign Legion and you know, the Gurkhas and so on. That's now the US fights war now with mercenaries called contractors or else at a distance, drones, you know. But no, just picking up kids across on the street and say, go out and murder people. Well, that's an improvement. There are a lot of changes like that. Uh, not all the good by any means, but a basis for moving on. It's what we can hope for. Well, I'm glad you invoked Vietnam. That's always, I always like hearing that because uh, I've put a challenge out to Oliver Stone to debate him. I'll, I'll give him a hundred bucks, but uh, he hasn't responded yet. So, and uh, I was very still honored to be called uh, Noam Chomsky's useful idiot on that issue. So um, we really appreciate this uh, immeasurably. Um, can't wait to hear what you have to say about uh, what's going on right now in Brazil. Maybe in a, maybe later in the future, we can talk to you about that, but uh uh, this is great. It's a great history lesson, and, and uh, we appreciate it immensely. Scott has a, a few last words. So, yeah, uh, much appreciation for coming on, Professor Chomsky. Um, uh, folks, you're listening to Professor Noam Chomsky on the Green Med podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or our Patreon, patreon.com/backslash Red Podcast. Thanks.